I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding and applying the wisdom of the Bible in your own context. In this season, The Problem of Good and Evil, we're digging into the topic of good and evil, finding new and maybe unexpected ways to think about it and respond to it. Let's get started. In the episodes of season two, The Problem of Good and Evil, we discuss some heavy topics and instances of evil that can be disturbing, especially for those who've experienced related trauma. We advise caution among listeners. If you find that you need help or support as a result of listening to this podcast, please consult the resources listed in the show notes. All right, welcome back. Uh, We're going to be talking about what is organizational evil. But before we do, I actually want to pass it off to you, Drew, to make a quick comment about our previous episode. Yeah, I think it's something important that I forgot to mention or didn't come up. And uh, and that's when we talk about the issue of suffering, uh, especially in America and Europe, they, they kind of turn to Christians or Muslims or Jews and say, like, that's your problem because you, you say you have a God who's good and loving. And I think within the biblical world, is, I think the biblical view is like the only view in which you can make sense of suffering with God as well. But I also push back on people and say, well, okay, if you're an atheist, you believe in no God whatsoever – you still have the problem of suffering that you have to deal with, right? Um, except that at the end of the day, you're going to have to end up saying something like, well, yeah, your suffering has no purpose whatsoever. Or the, the, the death of all those people, has it plays no role in anything outside of the betterment of humanity, you know, a million years from now or whatever that turns out, which we don't know will be better or more violent or pernicious or whatever. So I think it's worth pointing out where we're all in the same boat trying to explain and which is what has made me appreciate how much the biblical authors, they do a lot of work to help contextualize and explain, but they don't pull back the curtain and show you everything. Uh, but they give you enough to trust, which is like classic biblical author move, mm-hmm. right? We'll give you enough to trust, but then you have to trust and do and practice these things in order to be a part of this empire of God he's building. Mm, it makes sense. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, great. That's helpful <laughs> clarification. Um, so today we're talking about organizational, systemic, um, if I can use the word institutional evil. And to kind of set us up for this conversation, I actually want to read Matthew 12, 43 through 45, that says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I love those, like, kind, comforting words, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) You think one demon is bad? Seven are going to set up shop <laughs> for all of you. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Looking them in the eye right when he's saying this. You know? Yeah. So wow, like it's definitely a it's a it's quite the statement um, as you've accurately interpreted. What does he mean by this evil generation? Because obviously that's like that's a big kind of blanket statement to give. And as we think about kind of collective evil, we've been talking about you know evil as a 
evil in theory, evil as sin, like personal evil. But this is like a really big, broad topic of what happens whenever an entire generation, an entire community or organization or group of people commits evil. And what is Jesus, what is Jesus saying here? What is organizational evil? Um, yeah. Can you kind of help unpack this a little bit? Yeah, I think the context here is very important, as, as always. Um, if there are any Bible nerds listening, you're a Bible major or something, you should go out right now or click over to Amazon, buy Matthew Thiessen's Jesus and the Forces of Death, and read that thing front to back. It's one of the best books ever that's just come out two years ago, uh, where he talks about, you know, Jesus is confronting um, leprosy, like things that we don't think of as forces of death. But in, in Leviticus, these are all things associated with decay, decrepitness, death. Um, they have to be put outside the camp to protect uh, the presence of God and the people from the presence of God. So there's this kind of Jesus confronting all the things associated with death, disease, decay, rot, etc. in within the Jewish framework. But then he's also confronting a bunch of people who are in charge who are directly like not the people who are like, okay, not the Zacchaeuses who are like, oh, let's hear, let's hear what this guy has to say. But the ones who are like uh, saying, you know, he does all this by the finger of the devil, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. Um, and so I think when he talks about, and, and you have to be very careful when it says, and, you know, like John's gospel says, and the Jews did this. And, the, and you're like, wait, isn't John a Jew? Isn't Jesus a Jew? Aren't all the disciples Jews? Isn't everybody in the scene a Jew? Why is he saying the Jews did this? They're using these terms, I think, uh, rhetorically to indicate that this general opposition to the empire that Jesus is bringing against the empires that exist in that day. And that, um, and he'll, as we talked about in other episodes, he'll say, like, even if you, this evil generation, know how to do basically decent things with your family and with others, how much more so does God know to? So I don't think he's actually saying everybody I'm looking at is going to hell, right? Um and uh, I think what he's doing is flagging them up that what he's saying is indirect opposition. So this is not like, hey, if you guys could just amend a little bit of your theology, you'll be cool. <laughs> I mean, in, in the end, that's what Pharisees needed to do. They just needed to amend some of their theology and they could be part of the way. Uh, but it, he's putting them on notice that some of the things he's saying is going to be a direct affront to everything they think about the nature of the universe, about the nature of power, about the, how God is interacting with humans. Mm, um, wow. And I'm not a gospels scholar, so <laughs> I tread lightly here. Uh, but I think I think that's an easy one we can say. Um, I do think these questions that we're going to be asking here are the the difficult ones. And, the difficult ones, particularly for Westerners, um, because we think every, of everything in individualistic terms, which we'll talk about this later um, at, towards the end of this episode. But is you know every act that we do a choice of good and evil? So that's one way. You know, I mean, you, I've even hear preachers, very popular preachers, who will say like, "Every day you wake up with twenty-seven choices you have to make, and you have to choose the right one." You know, like, is that actually what the life that is being prescribed and described to us in Scripture? Is that what's going on? Is the environment within which we're making those choices is like, you know, is the culture here in this office good, fundamentally good or evil? And you can hear we've already said, like, yeah, it's all bad. It's all broken, uh, but it can be good as well. It can be turned. And then how do people and influences, uh, you know, various influences uh, change our decision-making mechanisms, right? So... What, you know, who's in charge of actually making decisions here? 
And these all sound like very simple, obvious questions, but when you get into organizations, when you get into wherever two or more are gathered, you have Mm -hmm. two or more sinners, and two or more sinners can create new types of sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it gets very complex very quickly. We don't have to disentangle it, but we do have to be aware that uh, complexity spins out unintentional harms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that's what the prophets are going to call our attention to. That makes a lot of sense. So you kind of already alluded to this in a very very simple, straightforward way that an organizational evil can be an evil done by wherever two or three are gathered to use that um, that New Testament verse as an example. What are some other ways that you would kind of flesh out the concept of organizational evil? Um, I think, uh, by the way, another book, if I can recommend one, uh, and you don't even have to be too nerdy. It was a really well-written <laughs> book that's written for normal people. Um, <laughs> But Cornelius Plantinga's uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, uh, which the title says everything. So he's, he's talking about this world is not in its natural estate. After the curses, the fall, the brokenness, it's, it's actually not the way it's supposed to be. So we should expect everything from an individual's own spiritual life all the way up to the family, to organizations, to churches, um, to find um, sin, corrupting, cancering, decaying, rotting, everything. So we're using all metaphors here to try and get at what we're talking about. Um, and I know calling that systemic evil or systemic sin, like in some circles, they're just like, oh, this is, I don't know what they say, CRT or something. You know, they, they, they like to attribute it to things. But again, notice what they're doing when you do that is you're saying, oh, that's part of that evil thing. I don't have to think about that thing. They're actually shutting down thought by saying, by associating this idea with some other idea. Um, I do think, the, as we'll see, the biblical authors and especially the prophets, if I can separate the prophets out in the Hebrew Bible and, and Jesus in the New Testament, Paul and James, uh, Peter, John, they're extremely concerned not about what individuals do, but about what Israel does and, and the Israel of God in the New Testament, which is is the people of the way like you and me. Um, and, I'll, and we can talk about some very simple ways in which that seems to be true. Okay. Um, one example that comes to mind for me would be uh, institutional racism, um, mm-hmm. which we've seen in the United States for centuries. Um, what would would you say that that counts within the biblical author's framework? What are some other examples you could give? Yeah, um, I, I think biblical, what we call racism, which obviously there's no races in the Bible. Uh, race is a fairly new way of talking about humans. Even in the Roman Empire, there was no racial distinguishing between people. Although they will make distinguishes between what they call blackface or Ethiopian and others, but race didn't seem to be the dividing line for how people were treated, uh, unlike in the Americas where it's absolutely a dividing line. So it's not wrong to think in terms of race as long as we don't think like race is actually like a fundamental category of humanity um, because it does impact. Uh, and you can think of, you know, uh, the example I give in class is, okay, the Torah says very explicit, Leviticus, like you were to have the same weights in the marketplace, so the same money system in the marketplace for the foreigner and the native. So you can think about a Hebrew versus a non-Hebrew if you want to think about race in broad categories. Um, you are to love your neighbor as yourself, but then it goes on in Leviticus 19 to say, and you should also love the foreigner as yourself. And you have to have the same laws and statutes. So it's very much in the, the, in the courts of justice, you have to treat the poor, you know, don't take pity on the poor and don't defer to the great. So it's no motivations to bend justice, to pervert justice uh, in any way. 
So then I asked the simple question, okay, what if it's the case, I'm the professor, what if it from God's eye view, it turns out that I grade, you know, uh, people of color 10%, I give them 10% higher grade than everybody else. Like, and if you ask me, Drew, are you a racist grader? And I, I would look you in the eye and go, no, no, my, my stepdad was African-American, my sister's African, no, I've raised in a mixed race house, no, I'm not racist at all. Uh, and, and I say, no, I'm colorblind, right? Like I don't, I don't pay attention to color. I don't even, I don't even notice who's what, right? But, but if you actually were to go do a statistical analysis of my grades, you're like, hey, do you know, you notice that this is going on? What happens in that context, right? And I'm just an individual. The only way I can actually know whether I'm mistreating people is if I pay attention to the differences of the people in front of me. So it's not by saying I'm colorblind, not by saying I'm not going to pay attention to anybody's race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. It's actually by paying attention to it, marking it, and then holding myself accountable to it as well. Now, that's just me as an individual who's in charge of a class, who's leading a classroom. You can imagine if an entire organization is not holding themselves to account in some way by noting how they're treating different people to see whether they're treating different people differently. Uh, by the way, EEOC law, we talk about race quotas and that kind of thing. There are no laws that require you to hire a certain percentage of minorities. Uh, the reason people have to hire certain percentages of minorities is because they've been sued. Someone came into that company and did a statistical analysis and said, hey, do you realize that you fire women uh, like more, you know, twice as often as you fire men? And so they've sued and, uh, and they found out they were actually doing what they call disparate treatment. Um, and some people might not like that, but I'm looking at the Bible going, they are literally saying the same thing. Because it says, you better not treat these people differently according to standards of justice or economically. Um, and God holds them to account with their lives. If you do, if you do exploit them, and exploiting them is mistreating them and treating them differently, then I will, in my anger, will burn hot, hot and I'll kill y'all. Uh, and he does do that. And it actually does happen. Spoiler. Um, for the, the end of the Hebrew Bible, he wipes out basically 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel because of their exploitation, which was meant to be rooted in equal treatment of everybody mm. or uh, treatment in equity. I don't know if these are debated terms, mm -hmm. but some kind of equity between people, no matter uh, gender, race, et cetera. And you would say like no matter the categorization, like what – whether you're thinking about race or, or gender or whatever – like eth ethnicity, whatever categories we have for that now. In the Hebrew Bible, it looked like kind of an us versus them, like whatever, like whatever, the, whatever outsider, the difference yeah. is. Yeah. Um, well, there's a very clear reason because in the other. ancient world, like there's very like realistic, practical reasons why you would not want foreigners to come in and be treated the same. And they were never treated like, so you go anywhere else in the ancient Near East, Foreigners are always kept out of the system. They're always treated as lower-class citizens. Exodus 1, uh, the Pharaoh feared the Hebrews because they might join other armies when they come in and invade because they weren't Egyptians. I mean, the very word in, Egypt, in the Egyptian language, ancient Egyptian language for human, is Egyptian. Mm. So, so by, by like the nature of humanity, Egyptians are, are real humans. Foreigners are others, mm. right? And so you can imagine that Hebrews might have appropriated some of those same ideas, and he warns them out of the gates as soon as they're across the Red Sea at Mount Sinai. Don't do that. Hmm. Do not. Don't have that insider outsider speak. People can come in warmly, welcome them in. Um, 
and uh, and bring them in. They can worship alongside you, but treat them the same in the marketplace, the family, uh, the courts of justice, where it counts. You have to, and you have to hold yourselves accountable because I will be holding you accountable. Mm. So, hmm. like, so hold yourselves accountable so it doesn't get to the point that I have to punish you. Essentially, yeah. Can I read some passages Please here? Do, yes. Yeah. So I think you know, easy ones here would be like Isaiah, right? Um, Isaiah fifty-eight, uh, and I, towards the end of Isaiah, as most people know, this is kind of where he turns towards new heavens, new earth, visions of what it's going to be like in the end, and then kind of looks at specifically foreigners in the land of Israel. Um, so Isaiah fifty-eight three it criticizes. Uh, the fast because you know people are fasting, but it's because they're also simultaneously oppressing all the people who work for them. And he's like, I don't want your fast, right? That's not what I want. And then this famous passage is not the fast that I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness and undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Uh, share your bread with the hungry and bring in the homeless poor. Okay, that's a rough translation. Um, bring the poor into your house. These are all things the Torah instructs them to do. If, if your brother is poor with regard to you, bring him into your house, sustain him as you would a foreigner, right? So um, that's – so you say, okay, well, that still sounds like me as an individual doing things. But when you look at, well, how does God hold them accountable? He holds them accountable as the collective of Israel. Um, individuals – and you could say it this way as well. All sin is institutionalized or organized in some sense. Because anything I do as a father is going to have proliferating effects into my children, my wife, my sister, brother. It's going to, it's going to proliferate. Um, there's many examples, and we talked about this last season, I believe, where Nabal or Jephthah or um, Saul, even King Saul, they make these rash vows. And then uh, – and it's not them that have to suffer from the rash vow. It's somebody else has to suffer because, and, uh, unto death in some cases. Um, so there's this very tight connectedness between your present foolishness and the way it has implications for other people. Um, and then you see when, you know, it's one problem to have one person in Israel who's doing wickedness, who's exploiting, prostituting, killing their children to other gods. It's a whole other problem when you have a whole clan doing that. So when the, the tribe of Benjamin becomes the kind of people who allow mass public homosexual rape of uh, people coming into their villages, the village where King Saul grew up. Um, all the other tribes of Israel align against them and say, like, we can't tolerate this, right? And then they act foolishly, and then it's like it's like volleyball foolishness uh, going back and forth. Downward spiral. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's like a worse decision after worse decision after worse decision. Uh, but it has a proliferating effect. Uh, and even at the end, when they come back to Jerusalem uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah 5, he's just like, what's going on? It's not that one person is committing evil. It's that whole groups of people in times of desperate need of food are buying up people's fields and exploiting them at their very moment of weakness. And he's like, are you guys crazy? What? Collective action like that is exactly why we got sent you know, into exile in the first mm -hmm. place. It just sounds exactly like sharecropping. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and interestingly, what he's saying there, there's not a specific law in the Torah against what they're doing. Uh, but it's the collection of laws that teach like what when you look at them all together, because they're not a bunch of rules that you either do or you don't. Is that collectively, if you as a group exploit people uh, and have systems of exploitation, 
Like, I mean, he's going crazy. Like, are you kidding me? We just came back in the land, and now you're going to get us exiled again for this this very thing. So the prophets, and I mean, we could walk through prophet after prophet uh, in the Torah, and they are all very consistently uh, worried about being ethical, if we can put it this way, as a group. Um, So if I can borrow Hillary Clinton's phrase, it takes a village to be ethical in the Torah. It takes a village to actually live out justice and righteousness. No individual can be just and righteous on themselves. It requires individual participation. It's kind of like soccer. It takes a soccer team to win a soccer match. It requires individuals to do everything they need to do, or football, sorry, for my (laughs) British and South American (laughs) listeners. But uh, it requires individuals to properly, functionally participate, but the team has to win or lose. Um, And so that is so dead obvious in the text. Um, You know, I, I would just remind people that anywhere that you see you in the text, it is probably y'all or you all. So for instance, can I, I'm going to read, okay, from Exodus 22, Drew's international version, (laughs) where, by the way, biblical scholars lament constantly the fact that we don't have a second person plural for English. Mm. Uh, We do, it's y'all, yens, yous, but we consider it an elegant, so we don't use it. (laughs) But what gets lost, okay, so let me read it in the translation and then let me read what it actually says. Uh, So this says, you shall not wrong a sojourner, a foreigner, or oppress him. For you are all, you were, sorry, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow. Now, as Americans, we hear you shall not. You are like, Matana, I won't do it, right? Only you can prevent forest fires. (laughs) Like, okay, Drew, I won't start any forest fires, right? (laughs) Apparently, it's all in um, in my court. So here's what it actually says, though. You all shall not wrong a foreigner or oppress him. For you all were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You all shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you all do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and I will kill you with a sword. Um, kill you all. Kill, kill <laughs> you all. Same thing in uh, Matthew 25. It's the same thing in the New Testament. It doesn't go individual in the New Testament. It stays mm-hmm. with y'all. So um, when uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, as often as you didn't do it to the least, he actually says, as often as you all, wow. y'all gave me food, y'all drank, uh, gave me a drink, y'all clothed, y'all visited me. And as mm-hmm. often as you did these things, right? And or often as you didn't do them in the, in the second telling. Um, but again, it's y'all. Uh, so the remarkable thing is God's covenant, his treaty with Israel is to the whole nation, but it's all, Jeremiah Unterman, we talked about this before, but it's also to every individual. With It's with the whole team. It's a, it's a team sport, but it requires participation of individuals, but it's going to be, they're going to be judged as a team. Mm. Uh, and it's really, honestly, it's very tricky to figure out does that really change in the New Testament or not? Um, or how does judgment, how is judgment both collective and individual in the New Testament? Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly in that same passage in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is saying, sheeps and goats, I'm going to divide you up, right? That seems to be individualistic. Um, but there's certainly dismay with the collective action of Israel. Um, okay, that was a long diatribe. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, that was, that was really good. I also remember, if you guys have listened to the first season, um, which again, give another plug for that, I highly recommend listening to the first season of Discover Your Roots, focusing on Hebraic thought, um, how we read the Bible. You mentioned, I think, toward the end of that series, as we were kind of thinking about, okay, how do we kind of put all this together? What do we do with it? 
And one of the things I remember you saying was get in community and learn the Bible in community. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, because I think, as you mentioned, we have this tendency to kind of take the Bible and go away and study it for ourselves. And then kind of there's a lot of emphasis on personal relationship with Jesus, which is great. But you also mentioned like don't lose don't lose the the fact that this faith is practiced in community. Right. Like we talked about the public public communal reading of scripture. Right. We talked about just and again, I think it comes to mind here once more where yes, there is an individual aspect to this, but it's also it is very communal. Um, as you mentioned, uh, sin sin has a a, a multiplied sin, synergy. How would you say? Yeah, Syn- synergy. Yeah. yeah, like a so, synergy No effect. pun intended. <laughs> synergy. We should copyright that right now. Uh, By the time you've listened to this, we've trademarked that and we have t-shirts. So, there we go. Yeah, don't even try. <laughs> the um, passage store. No, but there is, there's something to be said for that. Would you, I know we'll, we'll kind of talk about that as we go forward and we're going to be talking about what punishment, uh, punishment and reconciliation, what all that looks like. But where is there... Where is there space for like communal accountability? Like, mm. It's definitely hard to even think in terms of that because you, like, you can't be fully accountable for what your entire community is doing because you can't right. control what your entire community is doing. But I know there are places in Scripture where a, a prophet or a leader will repent on behalf of right. the entire people. So what is, what is communal accountability? What does communal repentance look like? Yeah, um, that's a like it, it amazes me that people think I, I I will hear Christians say I don't need to repent for whatever my church or my my ancestors did um, I didn't do any of that stuff I don't feel that way I'm like oh in Scripture they do mm. <laughs> like at least some people do um, and if not many um, I think you know it, it can start in the home I, where this all came, became very real for me like oh organized sin where two or more are gathered when me and my wife. Um, I just realized like, oh, my, I have my own sin and brokenness. She has her own and we get together and it seems like we create what we call a tertium quid, a third thing. <laughs> like there's this other thing that only her and I can do together. Like individually, we can't commit this kind of a sin. And I, and s- some very simple examples would be like, you know, the, the, f- the faultiness of our parenting. Uh, I have my own faulty parenting problems. She has her own faulty parenting problems. Hers are more fantastic, but she has some <laughs> faults too, I'm sure. Uh, we'll find them eventually. Um, but together, right? So when my kids, now my kids are grown, you know, they're most in, in college. And when they have to come to me and say like, you know, I, I really have some problems with some things that you guys did as parents. They're not saying Drew, Stephanie, they're saying together you guys kind of co-opted and some of the things you did I think are now a little bit dysfunctional and we had to say yeah and we had to repent right uh, uh, and the same thing with you know think of these church scandals if there's a pastor you know uh, and she is like using her power in the church and pastors have very special power which is why you know Peter says to the to the elders of the church, you are shepherds, but the chief shepherd is coming, right? So, like, you are going to be held specially account, so you don't lord your power over your flock. You shepherd them tenderly. Um, so, if there's a pastor who she's like using her power to manipulate circumstances to have, you know, to sexually abuse people, to get money, to just take control over people, to play out her sins, 
there's some way in which you want to say over time it's not just her. Like you, you you go into this, and I've been in these churches. Over time, what you realize is people start getting sucked in, and they're making decisions about whether they're going to call it out or not, or whether they're going to say things like, "Well, we have to respect the pastor because they're you know they want to put God over God." And it's really it's difficult like, to make some of these calls and to stand up and say like, "I think what you're doing is wrong. I think there's something wrong here." So even in those abuse situations, you, you usually find all kinds of complicity that has been slow. It's like a frog in a pan, which has been slowly warmed up. And it's typically people who come into the church from the outside and join, and they look around and go, wait, why Why are they doing this stuff over here? And it, it, it becomes problematic. So when we turn to places like Ezra and Nehemiah, where – where Nehemiah is like freaking out because he's like, you guys are going to get us sent back in exile. And so they have this, they read the Torah publicly together. Uh, the Levites explain it to them. So even if you're an ancient Hebrew who spoke Hebrew living in Jerusalem, you still need to have the Torah explained to you because um, they were the ones who were supposed to keep the meaning and understand the inner workings. And then um, they confess their sins and they begin with our stiff necked fathers who left Egypt in the wilderness. And, and brought us into this land. And you know, they're asking God for forgiveness going back almost a thousand years at that point, mm, wow. um, which means they see their present sin in continuity with all those that came be, uh, before them. So this kind of the sins of the, uh, the father has a trickle-down effect, and we participate in it. Um, and, and, and in some ways you're saying, just as you forgave them, forgive us as well, right? I mean, there's both – it's – laying fault, but it's not exculpating themselves and saying, you know, hey, it's not our problem. Our parents were like this. Um, it's saying there is a reality that we we were born in iniquity. We were born into a culture of sin, um, and we too need forgiveness from it and atonement. I mean, all of it, you know, when I read and when I get in the New Testament, I don't see anything differently. Uh, I mean, I don't think these are Jesus's scriptures. This is these are the texts from which he's explaining to his disciples why he had to come and why all these things needed to happen. Malachi says, "Behold, I'm going to send somebody in the spirit and the power of Elijah to mend the, the hearts of the children to the parents and the parents to the children, the fathers." And then Luke says the same thing. John the Baptist is the one who does that. Jesus comes in that same spirit and power. Um. And so this is like a this is like part of the program of the empire of God is this mending reconciliation acknowledgement that we're participating we we are an evil generation we're we've been participating in generations of evil and it's it's okay because we're part of the the kingdom and and there is a plan for all the families of the earth. Um, so when somebody looks me in the eye and they're like, I don't need to ask forgiveness because my great grandfather was a racist in the South, which my great grandfather was. Like um, his his gr- uncle was a Confederate soldier. Uh, they you know there's they had some race race issues. My sister who's African American, like they they shut off our family when they adopted her, mm-hmm. uh, and so and then later we got to know them. But um, but I actually do need to go to God and say I'm not detached from my great grandfather. I somehow have benefited from him, and and I have the the negative aspects of his and my their, my grandparents' sin. Uh, that has flowed to me today, uh, and we all need forgiveness. Um, I don't, like it, it is so foreign to me when people say institutions can't be sinful, and and only I need forgiveness. I just can't even wrap, like I literally can't wrap my mind uh, around it from the Bible. 
But I can understand if you read the Bible in a particular way and if you only read certain sections of it, that can make sense. Um, mm-hmm. So this is why we like this public reading, broad reading. You just turn on the audio or have somebody read it out loud and just sit there and listen and translate the use as y'alls and you'll be fine. <laughs> Good advice. Good advice. So whenever it comes to consequences for when a community does evil together, what does that look like in the Bible? Um, maybe there's not specific examples we can give about what that looks like today. I don't know. If, yeah. Probably yeah. not. But <laughs> It's all deferred today. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's, I mean, I think that's the difference is in, yeah. in the Old Testament, God brings evils down as consequences for their destruction and exploitation. When Jesus comes, he says, um, I mean, he just says, there's a day coming. I don't know what day it is. So Jesus mm-hmm. is presently ignorant of whatever day that is. But it's coming. I'm going to come back. I'm going to resurrect everybody, not just the righteous, but the righteous and the wicked. They're going to get judged. And some are going to go into the new heavens, new earth. Some are not. So it's – and he – and all you have to do is say, okay, well, what's that going to be like? Jesus compares it to the flood and to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So it's like it's going to be like that. Um so it, it is still there. It's still a looming, I wouldn't say threat. It's a promise um, because, it's, because, again, it's for the sake of creation. It's not just for humans. It's actually to re- renew the, the heavens and the earth um, and to bring the righteous into the new heavens and new earth. Um, and we don't have a list of who those people are. Uh, and we are commanded to go out and bring God's mercy. Paul, I will point out, Paul always extends the inclusion and the mercy that Levitical native native or foreign born, it doesn't matter. You're included in this kingdom. You're welcome to join in. You're welcome to come in. But he also doesn't, you know, in Athens, he says, God has, has been overlooking your ignorance, but that time of overlooking the ignorance is eventually going to come to an end at some point. So he both acknowledges the open inclusion of all the families of the earth from Genesis 12, but then also says, but it's going to hit a point where this is going to get cut off, right? Mm-hmm. So, What are some examples of, kind of now that we have the context of what this looks like now, um, before Jesus, <laughs> what did this look like yeah. um, I as mean, far as God giving punishment? Simple flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think about the flood, the violence of men. It's not the violence of Bob, Harry, mm-hmm. Uh, Asher, I'm trying to think of a Hebrew name, <laughs> Noah. Um, it's the violence of, of humanity is how it's described there. Sodom and Gomorrah, every man to the last man, all of them. I mean, like that, that description in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, is, it's like a, a four or five point description every time, meaning all the people of the village or all the men of the village. So it's all of them together, right? So Sodom and Gomorrah would not be a story in the Bible if it was like three or four really bad dudes who were just planning on raping anybody who came into town. Uh, it's the complicity of the institution of Sodom and Gomorrah that becomes the problem. Um, Israel, when God brings in the neo Syrian army, that's, it's, the prophets are very clear. This is God's judgment. Jeremiah says the same thing for Jerusalem. Don't think that it's not God's judgment. This is like, this is it. And God begins Jeremiah with, I called you as a prophet from the womb, which initially sounds promising. You're like, oh, that's special. Uh, And then you realize what he has to do. And he's like, and don't pray for these people. Don't ask me to relent from the evil. It's coming. And that was his prophetic message was to say, I don't even know what this reference means, but winter is coming, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's sure, it's set. Best thing you can do is just open the gates and hand yourselves over to the enemy. Maybe maybe we'll get some mercy. But um, so these are, you know, very definitive acts of judgment. And when 
Jesus looks back, these are the ones he looks back to as types of what's going to happen uh, in the eschaton. I, he, he doesn't look back to, interestingly, he does not look back to the judgment of Israel and Judah. Um, he looks specifically back to Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood uh, as, the, as the types of what his judgment is going to be like, which raises all kinds of very interesting theological questions for me, but those are nerdy. So, <laughs> so when it comes to, I mean, it looks like that before Jesus, we're talking about this period of time whenever there would be these kind of uh, large-scale punishment for communities that had kind of done just egregious sins together. Um, and those judgments were, in a sense, like, yes, judgment, but also to kind of keep them in check and to correct. And now that we have, like, a delayed, postponed right. kind of appointment of judgment— what happens now to kind of keep people in check? Uh, my my initial instinct is to say um, the kingdom of God established through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think about the Holy Spirit actually holding Ananias and Sapphira accountable for their sin in yeah. the congregation because it. W- I think that would probably count as a collective sin because yeah. they conspired together. Um, so what does it look like now as we think about addressing collective sin, like, community-wide sins that we see, institutional, organizational sins, how do we, how do we correct ourselves? Yeah. Like assess, be aware, correct, um, have a time of turning. I know we talked about just the, um, how, how something good can decay, but something decayed can also be redeemed. Right. How do we do that in this particular topic? Um, yeah, I, I, now that you're asking, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is obvious, uh, or it's now obvious to me what the issue is here. In some ways, we just say, like, we, we just do the things that we're supposed to be doing as the kingdom of God. Like, if in some ways, it doesn't matter. It's kind of like environmentalism. I'm like, I, okay, I don't care whether you are in the environmentalist cause. Surely we can agree as Christians that God created the earth and put us to steward it. We should quit putting poison into the water and the air, like, as much as possible. Like, we should really, you know, if I was a Christian that owned any kind of factory— I should have the most stringent environmental controls uh, for the sake of my fellow humans uh, going on there, whether you, you believe in global warming or whatever, because I know people have all kinds of issues with these these topics. It doesn't matter, though. Um, like, you just can't dump gasoline in your sewer <laughs> because it's, it's bad for other creatures that God created and don't want to be treated that way. Uh, you can't wantonly – well, except in Texas. You can't just wantonly go around shooting animals, right? You, but you can in Texas. You Apparently can actually, you can shoot them from a, a, helicopter. Uh, from a helicopter. Yeah, you can just <laughs> as many rounds as you can carry, right? <laughs> um, but even there, it's because they're destroying, right? They're, they're dangerous and destroying. It's like it's, – it's an environmental disaster of a different sort, but it is an environmental disaster. They actually they destroy the – they actually destroy the dirt itself. Um, it's wild. They destroy trees. They destroy everything. So um, – so when it comes to judging, you know, there's some ways in which we'd say, yeah, what the, well, Proverbs 31, uh, everybody knows the Proverbs 31 woman, but right before that, King Lemuel's mother instructs him and says, defend the rights of the needy, right? Uh, you should you should be looking out for the vulnerable. We should be constructing systems uh, and communities in which our, one of our priorities is looking to, to see who are the most vulnerable. I mean, a- again, when Jesus says... One of the metrics by which I'm going to judge whether you enter the new heavens and new earth is how you treated the least of these. 
I feel like we should prioritize that and say, all right, how are we treating the least? And, of course, the least of these in America is going to look very different from the least of these in Ghana or the least of these in Brazil. Or, um, and there are very wealthy neighborhoods in America who have the least of these in them, you know, broken families that really do need, you know, that like they might have all the wealth in the world, but like emotionally, family systems-wise, they're in the worst place you can imagine. Um, so I think churches need to be very savvy about, as a community, how do, how do we participate in, in uh, helping the least of these and looking out for them and, and, and actually standing up when there is kind of some mistreatment. Um, I don't casually drop this, but um, the black community knows very well, uh, I, I, because I had a black stepfather in the 80s in Oklahoma, I mean, it could be anywhere, but I happened to be in Oklahoma, and I was a teenager, and I used to. He used to drive me places before I could drive. Uh, he'd drop me off at work or whatever. We got pulled over all the time because I'd see a white fourteen-year-old um, with a forty-year-old African American man, and cops were like, "Well, that's fishy, right?" Um, which, okay, fine. That that probably did look fishy, and I was like punk rocker, and so it, you probably looked extra fishy. Um, but. Uh, before cell phones could ever record video, I knew exactly how some police officers treat grown black men and how they treat them differently than grown white men. Like not all police officers, but certainly some of them. I saw how that treatment happened. Um, and so I think there's a, a very natural way in which we say, uh, going back to that accountability question, how do we treat people differently from one another unless we hold each other accountable, hold ourselves accountable to some kind of systemic justice? So. Um, that we're called to, then we are just pretending like we're playing Christian. Uh, we, and we're just saying the right things to ourselves, speaking in Christianese so that we all feel better about the things that we're neglecting. So thinking about systemic justice, uh, systemic protections, and how do we make sure that we're not violating uh, those things? I think those are very common sense ways. Who, who cares about the day of judgment? In some sense, we just say like, yeah, the day of judgment's coming. Uh, like that bumper sticker I saw once, uh, Jesus is coming. Look busy, uh, which I think is a, <laughs> which I think is a, a great uh, sentiment. Like we have all this Torah work of justice to do, mm -hmm. and I'm using justice in small J in all kinds of ways. Justice for single moms who can't afford daycare or can only afford daycare, but it's not quality, right? Uh, justice for uh, immigrants who are getting the immigration system and they're treated very poorly by our government. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to believe differently about immigration law. You might still think it's right for them to be deported if they're illegal or something. Uh, but the way they're treated in the system is inhumane, like literally inhumane. Um, so we can look busy either way. Like our task is to look to do the work um, and to be there and to set up systems. Hmm. So That's uh, quite the call to action. Gives us a lot to think about. Thank you. Um, great. Well, next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, switching gears just a little bit. Um, should Christians participate in evil? So this will be interesting conversation. We'll be talking about wait, war wait. and it isn't the answer just no? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, so no, well, it's not. Well, right? yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be talking about um, whether the answer is no or not, and then beyond that, yeah. <laughs> lots to talk about um, within that topic as well. So make sure you don't miss it. We have only two episodes left getting sad it's mm. almost ending so sad so i can't sad. believe they're still listening <laughs> kudos to you we'll see you guys soon thanks for listening to season two of discover your roots the problem of good and evil to find more resources like this subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org 
forward slash foundations. Again, that's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media and learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.